Okay, so we are now in our structured discussion. We are going to speak about the uh, second part of the Eightfold Path, which is right intention, or right motivation, right attitude. And it, it follows right understanding, which we've been talking about quite some length for quite a while now. Uh, is, does everyone know the eight parts of the Eightfold Path? Wrong question. How many don't know? <laughs> okay. That's sort of what I thought. It is, it is uh, a very useful uh, structure. It's a very useful way of organizing practice. And, and so it's helpful to get to know it. And it's hard to remember eight of anything. It's much easier to remember twos and threes, right? So, there are three, three divisions of the Eightfold Path. Three pillars, so to speak, or three strands. Um, so, this might be easier to remember, is, is that those three are wisdom, virtue, and meditation. That's easier to remember, right? Wisdom, that's... that's the understanding part comes in there, of course. And so does the right right intention, right motivation part that we're going to talk about tonight. Those two come under the category of, of wisdom. Under virtue comes right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then under meditation comes right effort, and right concentration, and right mindfulness. So, um, as we go through this, hopefully you'll find those easier to remember and dividing them up into those three categories will help you. But there is a... The, the Eightfold Path really, it's not sequential, so please, we have to talk about it sequentially because that's the way words come out of our mouth, is sequentially. <laughs> We do all kinds of things sequentially, but the idea is more that these, the, all eight of these things are being cultivated simultaneously. So uh, it's not like they, they come one after another. But they are a very useful way of dividing the practice up. The wisdom component is right understanding, and I'm going to call this right intention from now on, but you can... Remember, the synonyms for, for the term in Pali would be motivation uh, or, or attitude or uh, mental approach, way of seeing things, way of relating to the world. Um, they, they fall within the domain of wisdom, and they're closely related. Right understanding is all the things we've been talking about for the last few months, the uh, the four uh, noble truths and uh, the three characteristics and karma and the, uh, the nature of the individual person and so forth. These are all ideas. These are all concepts. They're all things to be understood intellectually. Where they become wisdom is when they are realized in a very deep way, when they become part of your intuitive way of understanding the, the universe, understanding reality. But 
That comes experientially as a result of practicing the other seven parts of the Eightfold Path. And the right intention, the second one, is really a, an expression of that. If you understand these things, then you need to translate that understanding, that intellectual understanding of, oh, this is the way the world works, to how you see things and how you, how you react to situations. As you see, that's still involving the same part of your mind, right? Conscious, intellectual, analytical, but rather than thinking about it, you're, you're, you're doing it, you're living it. You're, uh, it's starting to manifest itself. Uh, well, what you want to do is, is you want these ideas to start manifesting themselves through your behavior, both your internal mental behavior and your external behavior. Okay? So. The Buddha described the practice of... Well, first of all, let me say something else. There's, we're going from the intellectual... We're going into... into we're going from the intellectual to practicing seeing things the way we intellectually understand them. And then the next six parts, the virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood, are practices. They're practices. And so is right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. These are practices that you do. Okay. So we're moving out of the intellectual now into the more practical side of it. Okay, back to right intention, the second part of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha presented this as being three parts. The first is called renunciation, which I'll need to explain, because it's a, it's a terrible word in English, and, but it also gets very misunderstood in other languages as well. first is renunciation, the second is goodwill, the third is harmlessness. So what you're cultivating in terms of right motivation, or right attitude, is an attitude of renunciation, an attitude of goodwill, and an attitude of harmlessness. And so this will translate into the motivations behind your actions as being motivations that are rooted in these three, the renunciation, the goodwill, and the harmlessness. So let's look at renunciation first. What is being renounced? Anybody care to guess what's being renounced? Yeah. Great. Yes, that is exactly right. The opposite of renunciation is being driven by desire, by craving. And you are not renouncing the world. This is what's often misunderstood. Renunciation does not mean renouncing the world. As a matter of fact, when you really understand it, it means just the opposite. It means embracing the world. It doesn't mean re uh, renouncing the world. It doesn't mean renouncing pleasures. And it doesn't. What it means is you're renouncing. You're renouncing craving. You're, you are renouncing 
Well, you're renouncing the belief that satisfying your cravings is going to be the path to happiness. Right? And so to practice renunciation is to try to catch yourself when you're acting out of desire and recognizing it for what it is and reminding yourself what you know through the practice of right understanding. Reminding yourself of the wisdom that you've acquired and applying that wisdom to yourself and to this particular situation that, you, that you're in when you notice this happening. An important part of the practice of renunciation is called guarding the senses. That doesn't mean you don't look at pretty girls or in case, good looking guys. What it means is that when you recognize that you are being driven by your senses because something feels good or it stimulates some kind of desire or craving in you, you recognize when that's happening. And you, what you ultimately want to do is come to the place of not letting that control you. Which is, is a process that takes some time. But it begins with just becoming aware of when that's happening. And so that's what guarding the senses means. It means noticing how smell, taste, touch, vision, sound, how the senses are so tightly connected in with this mechanism of desire and craving and wanting that if you start guarding the senses in the sense in this in this particular sense of that I'm talking about you start recognizing how this is going on all the time in little ways and in bigger ways that you, you have a pleasant experience and your mind automatically makes these connections that, oh, if I had more of that pleasant experience, or if I, if I possessed the thing or the person that produces those pleasant experiences, or so, then I'd be happy. And of course, the next step is that you start without, just automatically, you start thinking of different ways that you can make that happen, that you could have the thing that you want. So it's taken over your mind already. And of course, if you let that run, then you start actually doing the things to make this, this, this grasping, this having become a reality. And these are all the things that we learned were, were part of ignorance. We learned that all that you get from the world is pleasure and pain. Suffering and happiness do not come from outside of you. They don't come from the world. You remember, you remember that? For some of you weren't here, so you'll have trouble remembering it. But <laughs> this is, you know, the first noble truth is that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. You know, in the same way that pain is inevitable, pain comes from the outside world. Pain comes from a place that's beyond your control, as does pleasure. But we make the assumption that pain and suffering and pleasure and happiness are related in a way that they're not. 
as it turns out, pain causes suffering because it it induces craving. The, the craving for the cause of the pain to go away. And then we end up experiencing suffering as a result of that. And the same way, pleasure can, if, if, uh, if we, pleasure also causes desire, causes craving. And if we succeed in satisfying our desire, it'll give us, we'll get some more pleasure and we'll get a temporary shot uh, of a kind of happiness that not only won't, won't last, it's already got suffering mixed in with it as, as part of it, because you're going to lose whatever it is that you've got. And not only that, the second time you get it, the second bite never tastes as good as the first, right? So the suffering, in a variety of different ways, the suffering's already mixed in with the satisfaction that you experience when you do succeed in satisfying your desires. But then again, we realize that most of our desires don't get satisfied. And so we go around in a state of perpetual state of uh, unsatisfied desires, which makes kind of a background of dissatisfaction and suffering to our lives. And so these are the things that we studied as a part of right understanding, that the first noble truth. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, the cause of suffering is craving, craving is rooted in ignorance, if you can overcome the ignorance, the craving will disappear, and so will the suffering. And then there's the Eightfold Path, and now we're back to that. We're looking at taking this understanding, taking this intellectual understanding, and trying to apply it in our lives. Trying to remember it as you're going through your daily events. Trying to be mindful of it as, you're, as it's happening as you're having these pleasant experiences that induce in you, that, that take over your mind and cause all these thoughts and plans for how you're going to get more of that, and so forth. They reinforce craving. And the more craving you have, the more suffering you're going to have. So renunciation means renouncing that view, renouncing that process, trying to recognize it and catch it when it's taking place, and to the degree that you can, let go of it. <clears throat> it doesn't mean renouncing things that are pleasurable. It means renouncing the attachment to those things and the wrong view that they are the source of your happiness. <coughs> and of course, as a part of that, as a part of that renunciation, you may naturally find yourself not taking the second bite. Right? Not because this is some noble thing to do. Not because denying yourself this pleasure is going to somehow make you a better or more holy person. That wouldn't be a very good reason. That's the wrong kind of renunciation. And you go through life, well, I'm not going to have any fun. <laughs> just eat things I don't like <laughs> but I mean we, we, there are people like that right and there's a tendency like that probably all of us have a little bit of that idea in our minds that, that this would this would somehow be noble to be this kind of renunciant and of course 
of course, there are organized religious structures in the world that make this into a goal and put people up on a pedestal who can make themselves miserable all the time. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the wrong way to go. What you want to do is you want to take control over this craving. And right from the very beginning of your practice, from as soon as you understand the nature of, of suffering and how it's rooted in craving, and as soon as you understand that karma, that karma is when, whenever you suffer, that's the results of bad karma. Whenever you're happy, that's the results of good karma. But it's not because of what's happening to you. It's because of you've shaped yourself through either through ignorance and craving or through wisdom and we'll call it renunciation here because that's what that's the talk that's the term that's used in talk, discussing this talk. You you make good karma when you shape yourself in the direction of of renunciation and wisdom. Then you become a person who's less likely to suffer and more likely to be happy. And that's your goal in renunciation. So in order to do that, as you start working with your own mind, as you see how your mind becomes overtaken by desire, then yes, you might choose not to pursue some of your desires. You may, you may choose to let go an opportunity to experience some pleasure in order to more fully understand the way these kinds of pleasures work their, their power over you. When you do that, of course, everyone at some time or another has denied themselves something they wanted. And what happens there? You become really, really aware of the craving when that happens, right? It's a way of really bringing it to the fore. And if you examine your mind's reaction in the next moments, hours, whatever, the next day when you say, ah, I wish I had, you know, you learn by just observing. You learn and you understand how this, how this works in you. And so that's what renunciation means. Another way that you can practice renunciation is through generosity. Here is my mind says, mm, this is good, I'm glad I had this, I want more of this, if I have more of this I'll be more happy than I already am, boy won't that be great. You find your mind saying that to itself. And you say, okay, I know that that's not true, but it sure feels true. How can I work with this to, to find out the truth? Well, I'll take some of this stuff, instead of trying to get more of this stuff, I'm going to take some of what I have and give it to somebody else. And you try that, you know. Give somebody else the second bite. And when you do that, you discover things. <clears throat> um, first of all, you, you discover that not having that thing doesn't really make you unhappy the way you thought it would. That losing it doesn't. It, you also discover that seeing somebody else enjoy it actually is a source of happiness. You see that you can 
make yourself, you can actually make yourself happy by denying craving. That's an important lesson to learn. You can see, if you, by enjoying the pleasure that you see somebody else receives when you give them those, whatever that was of yours that was the source of your pleasure, when you see them enjoying it, you realize that there's not so much difference between you and them. Their joy is your joy, and their happiness is your happiness, and therefore you don't need to be wrestling with them so that you get the most. You can actually make yourself even happier by giving them some of yours. That's an incredible lesson. That's not one of those things that's necessarily, well, I was going to say, it's not one of those things that's necessarily instantaneously obvious. It's a funny thing about it. On the one hand, it's something that I will warrant that all of you already know. On the other hand, for most of you, even though you know it, it's not a part of how you live your life, at least to any great degree. Maybe there's some people that, you know, your, your, your uh, partner, your children, or somebody that you really love, and you, you employ your knowledge of this in, in that regard. But the rest of your life, you don't. So it, it's something that we already know, but somehow... Uh, it doesn't really penetrate the way we live our lives. On the other hand, it's something that it's not like it's instantaneously obvious. You know, it's not as obvious as as when you bite into that piece of chocolate. The pleasure that comes from that is really immediate and undeniable, and you know that it's there. The the pleasure you get from giving away that piece of chocolate is a little more subtle, and it takes uh, it takes a a little bit of a different orientation in your mind to discover that and experience that fully and to penetrate it. But once you do, you realize how powerful a truth that that is. The very famous Buddhist quote, it's worth everybody remembering because you'll always find it handy, from Shantideva, Bodhisattva's way of life. And he says that all the suffering in the world comes from trying to make ourselves happy. And can you see how that is? There is, I don't know about all, but certainly there's so much suffering that's created by people trying to make themselves happy and doing so at the expense of others. The second part of what he said is all the happiness in the world comes from making others happy. All the true happiness. And that's something worth remembering. So, the practice of renunciation is a part of right attitude, right motivation, right intention. The practice of renunciation is to teach yourself this lesson through, through mindful awareness of how you react through guarding the senses and through mindful awareness of how you react to uh, these pleasant experiences. Uh, through denying yourself, not across the board because it's somehow a good thing to deny yourself, but rather denying yourself at times in order to learn and understand more deeply how, how desire controls you. And then the practice of generosity, the step beyond denying yourself is to give away what you already have. And 
That's the practice of renunciation. It's yes. I have a question. How would you approach <coughs> renunciation with aversion? How would you approach renunciation with aversion? You've been talking okay. about renunciation. Well, see, the, the, uh, you deal with aversion. The second part of right intention, the second practice, is the practice of goodwill, and that specifically targets aversion. The the uh, renunciation targets the desire side of craving. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about next. This has is aversion. So we have aversion, everything from mild dislike and annoyance to to virulent hatred, all kinds of aversion, ill will, and it's not all directed towards other people. It's directed towards things, it's directed towards the world, it's directed towards ourself, it's directed by one part of ourself towards another part of ourself. Ill will, judgment, criticism, all of these things. Negative mental states. They're all different forms of craving. They're all forms of wanting things to be in a way that they're not. But whereas desire takes the form of, ah, I like that, I want more. Aversion takes the form of, oh, I don't like that. I want it. I, I want to get away from it, or I want to destroy it, or I want to avoid it, or something like that. Aversion. <clears throat> and the practice that counters this aversion is goodwill, cultivating goodwill, cultivating loving kindness, compassion, patience. Somebody annoys you. Patience, understanding. Once again, seeing yourself in the other. Somebody's doing something that bothers you. Maybe they're doing something that harms you. To understand why they're doing it. When you look at yourself and say, why do I do things that harm somebody else? Well, I'm, I'm either trying to satisfy a desire or I'm trying to satisfy uh, an aversion. And so if they're doing that to me, they're coming from the same place. All they want to do is be happy. They just don't know that happiness doesn't come from doing things like that to me. Worse yet, they don't realize that when they do things like that to me, they're only creating more suffering for themselves in the future, making things worse. So, understanding is a part of goodwill. When somebody starts to piss you off, see if you can't bring some understanding into it. Patience. Patience is very much a, a part of that. Patience is, on the one hand, patience is restraining yourself from reacting. But patience also, it's not just, it's not just the suppression of the desire to act. It's not just enduring. You know, I'd like to punch this guy out, but I'm just going to endure instead. It, it also, to truly be patient means that you have to bring understanding into it as well. So, although we will go through our lives with many sources of uh, aversion arising of all kinds to people and to things and to situations and to things we do ourselves and so on and so forth, there are many, many different sources of aversion there. But the practice of goodwill means trying to con confront that with patience and understanding. 
patience, understanding, forgiveness. Forgiveness, compassion. Compassion, loving kindness. You see how all of these terms, what they're doing is they're really guiding you being in a very negative place, to being in a less negative place, to being in a neutral place, now to being in a positive place, and being in an even more positive place. So you're going from ill will to goodwill, from aversion to loving kindness, just like you go from desire to generosity. And if the desire into the spectrum, you actually find nothing but the causes for more suffering. Generosity into the spectrum, you find a new source of happiness. You go from the ill will inversion into the spectrum, which is suffering itself. If you bring mindfulness to your experience, how good does it feel to be annoyed? How good does it feel to be angry? Right? So, the, the, what, what dwells in that? side of the equation is just some degree or another of unhappiness, suffering. You move yourself over to the positive side. And when you can learn to love your enemy, then, then you really tap into the positive space and the happiness. So that's what the practice, that's what the practice of uh, goodwill is about, is this second basis cultivating right right attitude, right intention, right motivation. And the third? <clears throat> third is harmlessness. <clears throat> we go back to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, understanding of suffering. There's all kinds of pain in life. And for people who don't understand the Dharma, for people who haven't achieved the awakening that leads to the end of suffering, there's all kinds of suffering. So, beings like ourselves, and I just don't mean two-legged beings like ourselves, I mean sentient beings like ourselves, to exist means to be subject to pain. And if you're not if you haven't achieved wisdom, it means to be subject not only to pain, but to suffering. This is inevitable in life. But if we look at this, there, there is pain in life that is absolutely unavoidable. All pain is inevitable. You cannot escape pain. There's going to be some pain. You know, no matter how much opiates you use, it wears off and the pain gets through. Life is painful. And um, to the extent that you don't know better, you're going to suffer as a result of that. So there is this inevitability of pain and suffering in life. That no matter what we do, even if everybody in the world were Buddhists, and we never inflicted any unnecessary harm at all on each other, we'd still experience pain. And if you aren't enlightened yet, you're still going to suffer as a result of that, right? This is the nature of sentient beings. This is the nature of reality, is that that, that pain and that suffering is there. Now you look, though, 
at the pain and suffering in the world. And you'll see there's a huge amount of pain that doesn't need to be there. Would you agree to that? Yeah, a huge amount of pain that doesn't need to be there. And a huge amount of suffering as a result of what we do to each other that doesn't need to be there. So, to understand this, if you understand this, you realize that there's a kind of natural moral principle that comes from understanding this basic truth. This is not a moral principle that God or Buddha or anybody else dictates. It's one that is self-evident when you realize that this is the nature of the existence of sentient being. And that, that, that truth, that moral principle is there really there is no justification for creating avoidable or unnecessary pain and suffering in this world. There is absolutely no reason that justifies creating more pain and suffering than is inescapably there already. That makes sense? That's a We all hurt the same way. And anything we do that hurts someone else is really no different than hurting ourselves. And so harmlessness, harmlessness is a behavior that comes from wisdom. When you realize that we are all one, and when you realize that we are going to experience pain no matter what, and until we become awakened, we're going to experience suffering as a result of that pain, then how can you how how can you see it as anything other than wrong to create any unnecessary harm and suffering in the world, any avoidable harm and suffering? And so that's the basis of the practice of harmlessness, ahimsa. But of course you do it recognizing that you cannot live without being the cause of some pain and suffering. Life lives on life. It's an unfortunate truth. You could say, okay, I'm going to do nothing but eat leaves. Well, if you're the only one in the world, probably you can eat leaves and Except for the occasional caterpillar that you don't notice. <laughs> but that's not the world you live in. The only way you can get your leaves to eat is if somebody plows fields and then the process destroys thousands of insects and mammals and habitat for birds and all kinds of other things. Life lives on life and you cannot live without inflicting some harm in the world. So the practice of harmlessness isn't some kind of absolute that I'm going to, okay, I'm not ever going to be the cause of any kind of harm again. That is ridiculous. That's been tried. There was a religious movement at the time of the Buddha that tried that, took that attitude. That's what we're going to do. And they came to the logical conclusion that the only way they could do that was to sit down, not eat, not drink, not move, until they died. Not a good solution. <laughs> But to take responsibility for not causing any more pain, suffering, harm, injury in the world, uh, then you can avoid. That's the practice of harmlessness. So, you see, do you see how these are the applications of all the things we've been talking about? The Four Noble Truths, uh, the... the uh, 
the nature of the self, the, the, uh, the three characteristics, uh, the truth about karma and the fruits of karma. And I'm sorry to those of you who haven't been part of the first part of the discussion because you're going to say, no, I don't see it all. <laughs> but for the rest of you, uh, for those of you who, who study this Buddha Dharma, can you see that? And this is, this is the important thing. Now, have you not thought to yourself as we, as we explored all these things to understand them at an intellectual level, have you not had the thought that, yeah, okay, I get that, but what difference does it make? What does it change? How do I, you know, how do I translate that from a nice idea we talked about on Thursday night to the rest of my life? That's exactly what this part of the Eightfold Path is addressing. And it gives us some tools, practical tools to work with. If you can understand how if you can understand how desire and aversion and ignorance are at the root of not only your problems, but also the problems that you create for everyone else, then you can apply that you can apply that knowledge in your daily life. And you apply that through undertaking to practice renunciation in the sense that I defined it earlier. Undertaking to practice goodwill, undertaking to practice harmlessness. As a matter of fact, all the rest of the parts of the Eightfold Path are tools to make this more effective. That's really what they are. They are more detailed practices to apply to these things. Before the Buddha's enlightenment, he said he figured out this part. He said he examined his own thoughts. And as he reflected on his thoughts that he would have in the course of the day, that he saw that he had thoughts that were rooted in greed, lust, desire. He saw that he had thoughts that were rooted in aversion, uh, annoyance, hatred, ill will. And he saw that he had thoughts that in their in their nature, were cruel, and that if they were acted upon, would result in acts of cruelty. Anybody here ever had cruel thoughts? <laughs> yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. And he could see that these three kinds of thoughts only created more suffering for himself, created suffering for those around him, that led him further from his spiritual goals. And so he saw that the opposites of those thoughts were thoughts that were, the, the opposite of the thoughts resulted of that they're rooted in desire were thoughts that were rooted in generosity and love and non-attachment, non-grasping. And he saw that the thoughts that were, that opposed those of, of ill will and aversion were thoughts of goodwill, loving kindness, compassion patience and understanding. And he saw that the thoughts that stood in opposition to cruel thoughts were thoughts of harmlessness or even kindness, of helping. Thoughts of, of, of what he could do to diminish the amount of suffering that there was in 
other beings and the beings around him. And so he said, and so this was before he was awakened, and so it became a part of his practice as a bodhisattva, intent on becoming awakened, to try to catch those three kinds of thoughts. And whenever he caught one, to do his best to transform it into the other kind. And of course, it's not it's not a black and white either or thing. If you can just take your your aversion and bring it to a place of patience where you don't act on it, that's a lot of progress. Of course, there's a lot further you can go. So it's a process. It's a kind of work you do on yourself, but it's a way of making a shift in your thinking. Making a shift. That's another way that sometimes the, the, this term uh, we translate it, I'm translating as right motivation and right intention. Uh, another way of translating it is right thought. Because all of our actions come from thoughts. Right? Uh, all of our actions come from intentions. But there's a thought component involved in this. So another way of describing the second part of the Eightfold Path is right thought. So it's a way of changing your thinking, of intentionally changing your thinking, of seeing how you're thinking and making a change. And that's how you practice right attention. You've got three minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> okay. So I was thinking about, there's been this argument raging like, uh, in the media around the country of like violent video games, pornography, things that like really satiate those desires that some people say, uh, you know, these things are great, that it gets our violence and gets our lust out in a safe way. And then other people say, no, this is terrible. It's like, uh, it's uh, strengthening these pathways of of craving. I I was wondering what you thought the Buddha's view or or, or what your view (laughs) would be on that. Well, it probably (laughs) won't surprise you that I I agree with the people that say that, that engaging in these kinds of games and activities is very harmful to yourself. It's, you know, there is, there's, there's another similar idea to this, that, that if, you're, if you're prone to anger, the good thing, the thing to do is to find safe ways to vent your anger. You know, so go beat up on a tree instead of somebody else. Granted, it's much better beating up on a tree than somebody else. But you are never going to get over being an angry person by beating up trees. And (laughs) the more your mind starts to associate going like this at a tree uh, when you're feeling angry, the the more likely it is that sooner or later you're going to do that with something that's not a tree. So um, the the real question to ask is, where, where is where is all this interest and proneness to violence coming from? And well, it's being it's it's actually being cultivated in so many ways in this society of ours because people can make money off of it, right? So you make people you make people violence prone so that you can sell them ways to satisfy their violent urges. <laughs> and you hope that not too many of them act them out, you know, in the post office or the schoolroom. Yeah. Uh-huh.
If I stop now, the miracle would be performed. <laughs> 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 I have another question. We would have, have to be complicit by hushing. Uh, yes. Do you have time for a question? Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to keep some clarity, if you wouldn't mind, um, it's the 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 three um, thoughts that the Buddha you were saying he had that he recognized. Um, that you, can you remind me of those again, real quick? Just yes. Uh, put them simply: greed. Hatred and cruelty. Okay. That's an easy way to remember. You can expand on that. Okay. <laughs> no, that's, those will work well. And those, is it fair to say that those thoughts are not the mind? They're tethered to the mind through the sensations that the, the reactive, that, that, uh, that, because the way you started the whole, this whole lesson this evening, that, that influence or that tricked the mind into thinking, uh, those, those, that is the mind and it's really that's an unpure mind and so this is all about a technique to purify the mind by reversing that process and yes. letting go of untethering those things yes okay okay, okay. yes exactly okay and the other things three things to help you remember the opposites of those they be you know simple words that you can unpack for yourself are renunciation goodwill and harmlessness The neurological thing. Well, it's a yeah, psychological, neurological. Our minds, our brains, are continuously being formed and reformed by all of our thoughts and activities and experiences. And uh, you know, we we end up a, a sensation triggers a pattern that's been established through past behaviors, and that's what we're working on. So you have. You have a mind that needs to be purified of a lot of really rotten programming. <laughs> but the, through the observation, you begin to see that the it's not actually the mind. Yes. And that's an important point, is that, is that you want to change what's happening in your mind. But this is not about suppression. It's about, first of all, mindfulness and seeing clearly. Because you can't force these changes. You you have to you have to induce these changes. You have to induce the mind to change itself, and that comes about uh, through careful observation and understanding. That the wisdom you acquire intellectually becomes applied uh, practically. All right, I think you're going to. Let me go. So, thank you very much. <laughs> now, next week, uh, this this will be continued with uh, Jordan, correct? Right. Okay. And then, uh, uh, so please do come next Thursday so that you can ask all the questions of Jordan that you didn't have time to ask of me tonight. Of each other. Of each other, yes. You can share your own thoughts and experiences. Thank you very much. I'll see you two weeks from now. <clears throat>